sermon text this morning is found in Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. And with this passage, we conclude our time in Mark chapter 12. We've been in Mark 12 for November and December. And this is the way I'm going to preach the Gospels uh, whenever I do a series from the Gospels. We'll take it in chapters and chunks and sections rather than going straight through a book over a long haul. A number of reasons for doing it that way. A couple years ago... I rethought how I go at series, uh, and I rethought it in the interest of keeping the Bible's breadth before us. So for a number of reasons, I think less is more in preaching. Uh, I don't expect to get uh, 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 arguments on on that point. Uh, Not for Bible studies. I don't mean length of time in the pulpit or uh, Bible studies, but for preaching the Bible less is more, smaller increments over a shorter burst of time. I've been operating that way the last couple of years. That way we get to key on major themes and we break up larger books into punctuated sections and we just go through briefer series and that way in a preaching year you get a little bit more breadth of uh, all that's in scripture. We need to be in the Old Testament and the New Testament and different genres in both as a year unfolds. Speaking of, my plan for the first three months of the new decade is to go to the end of the Bible, a series called A Beginner's Guide to the End. Uh, We'll look at scenes from Revelation. That'll be about 10 or 11 sermons total. We won't go through the whole book, uh, just uh, some scenes here and there. So that's the preaching plan coming up. If you're wondering where we're going, that'll be January to March. Now here in this passage before us, Luke 12, 38 to 44, we've got a version of less is more in that this contribution of someone in poverty, two small coins, was here judged by God in flesh to be worth more than all the more being put into the offering boxes as Jesus watched this contribution be placed into one of 13 trumpet-shaped offering containers situated throughout the temple courts, including in the court of women where this widow would have been. And Jesus wasn't giving an across-the-board assessment of giving here and its motivations. He wasn't saying every time somebody gives uh, in poverty, out of poverty, uh, it counts more than than somebody who gives uh, out of their wealth. No, this is an instance. 
this is a teachable moment for the disciples, and he seizes upon it as such. The lesson for them being, impoverishment is not always uh, a matter of income or resources. It, it, it uh, is really a matter of response to God. Uh, whether or not you're impoverished uh, may not always be a matter of income. Now, biblically considered, it, 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 it certainly is, but Jesus is, is taking the point and, and making it a little bit larger. Impoverishment or not is really a matter of response to God. That's what he's trying to show his disciples here. The widow was rich toward God, as Jesus puts it elsewhere, rich toward God in a way that the scribes who managed the courts of God, held the things of God day in and day out, were not rich toward him. And so in this instance, Jesus, looking at her, knowing the state of her life, that she was in poverty, and most widows back then were, she puts everything on God. Cast your cares upon him, as the psalmist says, because he cares for you. She believed that in full. I mean, if you think of her coins like chips, you know, she's, not that I have experience with this, but she's all in on God. That, that, that illustration helps somebody. Not every Christian in poverty is all in on God, all right? So, so don't think about this in, in blanket considerations. Not every Christian in poverty is in on God. Uh, and conversely, some very wealthy Christians are. Impoverishment is not always a matter of income. Here, it's a matter of response to God. So again, we don't make blanket judgments from this like, you know, if, if you're more progressively uh, uh, oriented, you, you kind of say, you know, the, the, here's a passage where, you know, the, God is always for the poor over the rich. And, or, if, or, if or, you know, somebody says, well, if you, don't, if, you don't, if you give from the fat of your resources rather than the muscle, then it's not really generous. And, and no, it, none of that is just so. God is no respecter of persons, it says elsewhere in Scripture, meaning with him it's ultimately not about what we have or don't have, do or don't do, though he does judge our actions, but the basis of acceptance with God, because we've all sinned, whatever else good we've done, the basis of our acceptance with God depends entirely upon what he does for us. And anything that we, that we have to, to, to give is, is, uh, is his anyway. What Jesus knew, looking at this passage, what Jesus knew, in addition to, to knowing the state of the widow's means, he's not guessing, he knows. He knew these religious leaders were living large off of people like her. And she's supporting them, actually, and making her contribution. That's where the temple contributions went. But rather than being led to more of God by them, they're devouring her house, as Jesus puts it in verse 40. Jesus' way, way of saying, these scribes are total wolves. Uh, they, he warns the crowd about them in this, in this passage. They're not trustworthy. They've, they've listened to me for three years at this point. And they are as obstinate and as opposed to Jesus as they've ever been mere days from now. Uh, they'll ensure that he's killed by the Romans. I want to take what we have before us from two angles as we usually do. It's sort of a handy way of, of looking at a passage. 
One angle being dignity and the other being delusion. So we'll just take this from two angles. What we've got here, we've got a a dignity angle here and we've got a delusion angle here. By delusion, I mean self-deception. Let's take the second one first, delusion. We'll be a little briefer with it because it dovetails with the lesson for the disciples. That being impoverishment is not always a matter of income. It is a matter in this context of, of, of how we respond to God, whether we, we render to him what is his or we don't, which is, which is all of us is what we render to him. Now, now, rich and poor alike can be deluded or self-deceived. This is not the property of, of the rich, uh, as if uh, the passage is saying that it's not. Here in our passage, verses 38 to 40, it is the scribes who happen to be rich in the economy of that day, rich in in material abundance but poor toward God, in that their self-deception, the delusion they were under, is that that they they had God on a a string. They they, they all, all roads led back to their own interpretations, back to their own understandings. Uh, they, they were recasting God in their own image all of the time. Jesus has challenged that throughout his ministry to this point. He's at the end of his ministry, his ministry to them as well, which they could have gotten in on. A few of them do along the way, but very few. Most of them stay opposed because Jesus was a threat to their power. And so in their self-deception, they are keeping themselves from responding to God the way he wants to be responded to, which is in repentance not penance. Penance is where we try to prove ourselves sorry for our sin. Repentance is, I see what you say about me is true, and I want to turn from that to you. I want to stop looking in sin for what I should look for in a Savior. Everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. And so in their self-deception, they're, they're, it's keeping them from responding to God in repentance and faith. God in flesh, Jesus, has been aiming them toward this all three years of his ministry so that they can avoid this condemnation that they have put themselves under. But when we read verses 38 through 40, as you just look at verses 38 through 40, they like to walk around in long robes, they like the greetings in the marketplaces, they have the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at feasts, you know, none of that sounds like that's so bad. Then you get the devouring widows' houses, and then we go to an example of one in the next passage. But that sounds bad, but then a pretense make long prayers. Not even that sounds uh, terribly bad. And so when you look at these things in verses 38 to 40, out in the open, with the exception of one, and even that was, was cloaked, these guys, they didn't look evil, they, whatever that looks like. You know, we kind of think, well, I'll always be able to tell evil when I see it, but it can be very subtle. Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. These guys, out in the open, these things, the greetings in the marketplace, the, the best seat in the synagogue, well, well, they're scribes. Shouldn't they have the best seat? In the, I mean, these are just conventional things. Nobody sneezed at, at this, but here they are. Uh, with their hearts uh, having a, a disposition toward God 
that's completely and totally off. I mean, we, we tend to think of these guys like peacocks, you know, sort of strutting around and their long robes is like their plumage. But that really wasn't the way it was. And so Jesus is always aiming for the heart. And, and in the heart, underneath the, the long robe, as it were, under whatever we have on this morning, self-deceit can be alive and well. And self-deceit Delusion is the unwillingness to face the truth about myself and respond accordingly to God's provision. All my motivations are bare before him. He looks not merely at us, but through us. Just take one instance here. Uh, he says in verse 38, they like the greetings in the marketplaces. He, well, you know, that's, that doesn't seem so, so terrible. I mean, externally, that looks like friendliness. Greetings in the, in the marketplaces. Until you're not greeted, until you feel snubbed by someone, the scribes felt snubbed by Jesus, and you feel in that moment the brimstone smoldering in you toward that person. Why? You expected to, it, to be at least acknowledged if not treated well, but why did you expect that? Because that's what good people get, and you're a good person. How could some people not know that? What's wrong with them? The height of self-deception is believing God owes me something. Believing God owes me anything. Like, he must sustain my health, for instance. Do I believe God owes me that? He owes me not to get sick? Or does God owe me a certain standard of living? Or does God... Owe me uh, even meeting my expectations for my children. I put in this kind of work and now I should get out of it this result. See, those are my versions of what's in verses 38 through 40. Perfectly presentable. Yeah, I want to be healthy. I want to have a certain standard of living. I want my kids to be a certain way. But, but some of that is, is built on the the delusion that as long as God's giving me that, then he's worthy of my response to him. What I have to learn to do is respond to God as he is from however life turns out. He doesn't owe me anything. If, if salvation is truly of grace, he doesn't owe me anything. It's easier to say than it is to practice. Now, there's also a consideration of dignity from our passage here. Verses 41 to 44, we have the delusion of the scribes who believe the Lord owed them something as it showed up in their expectations of people. There was an expectation above that of uh, the Lord owes us all this. It's the way we should be treated, what should happen. So they lived at the height of self-delusion. The height of self-deception is to believe the Lord owes me something. Jesus is confronting that. But then Jesus moves to the woman, and he dignifies her. And what's remarkable about this is that she is otherwise completely out of the way, beside the point, not really part of what's going on here. I mean, if, if people knew what it was she was there to contribute, they would dissuade her from contributing it. This, this is a pittance. This is too small to, to give. Don't, don't give that. Keep it. But Jesus assigns great value to her in her giving. 
And that's what dignifying is. To dignify is to assign a certain value. And we do this with people. We do this with places. We do this with things. We do this with concepts. If you dignify an idea, you find it valuable in some way. If you dignify a person, you either assign value to to him or her because of their uh, actions that are pleasing to you or are honorable or or you recognize the value that's already inherently there as, as uh, the imago Dei, the image of God. I married a couple right here last night. Uh, marriage is one of our most dignifying acts as, as people, uh, not because of its pomp, the tuxes and the dresses and the flowers and the music. All of that is wonderful. I even got to wear my robe. I love weddings like that where I get to wear my robe. It feels so ministerial when I get to do that. But marriage is dignifying because in the act of marrying, a bride and groom are demonstrating to everyone that they have given to one another exclusively the highest value among all other relationships. And that's what it means to dignify. It means to assign a certain value. All of us, every human being has been assigned the value of, of bearing the image and likeness of, of God. Human beings have dignity. We're unique in creation this way. Uh, I've been to the zoo. I, I know the apes are not in charge there. They are not feeding the animals. The people are because the people are made in the image and likeness of God and thereby we, we possess a, a, an, an infinite value. But ever since the fall into sin, all the way back in the garden, what do you have? You have humanity uh, divvying itself out. You, you have, you have uh, uh, caste systems and you have class distinctions. You have racism and you have right and wrong sides of the track. We, we have all these artificial ways of denying each other's value, each other's dignity. We all of us live in the vandalism of shalom. That's the way Cornelius Plantinga puts it in his great book, not the way it's supposed to be. Shalom. By shalom, he means God's provision for human flourishing. Living in the vandalism of human flourishing because of sin, both in unrighteous and self-righteous expression. This is why Plantinga says, here's his example. He says, uh, the example he gives of the vandalism of shalom is 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 your C plus average Harvard student barely still there, feels he has nothing to learn from the Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople, right? It's a fictional university, actually. It's a creation of the humorist Peter Shakeley, but you get the point. Hoople is a real town in North Dakota, by the way. Jesus watched a widow place two Greek lepta coins, copper coins in the text. They're leptas. They're They're basically worthless. Jesus adds in verse 44, it's all she had to live on. She puts her ramen noodle money in. Here is someone the scribes and the religious system they presided over doubly failed. Because not only are they happy to take what's hers, devouring her house as it were, they should have made provisions for her. It's the very thing the early church will do. The early church, in fact, becomes known for making provisions for widows 
When you get to the New Testament book of Acts, the New Testament office of deacon takes form around the needs of widows. Read Acts chapter 6 later and see it. Why them? Widows were particularly vulnerable back in that time. You didn't have social security. Your family was your social security. Your family was your safety net. And life expectancy being what it was, many women lost their their husbands and their sons uh, and and lived on and and had no means of support. And so the, the early church was very attractive to people on the, the margins because the church uh, issued a, a kind of care in real time for people and, and, and took them in as their own family. So she was in poverty. And the scribes actually had some fault in that. They were complicit in that, providing nothing for her. The church did. The scribes didn't. Now, biblically considered, we need to understand something about poverty because it shows up here. When you look at poverty through the lens of, of Scripture, you see that, that poverty is treated in the Bible as both an economic condition and a social condition at the same time. An economic condition and a social condition at the same time. And it's still this way. In fact, and the scribes knew this because they knew the Old Testament cold. There are over 200 references to the poor in the Old Testament alone. And the focus on them continues on into the New Testament with the apostles. But poverty is biblically considered an economic condition and a social condition at the same time. As an economic condition, what it means to be poor is to have little to no resources the world values. And so it's an undignified economic condition. Dignity, again, being what assigns value. And people are poor not just in money resources, but education or where you come from, or who you come from. The economic condition of poverty is really a pie chart of of factors, but then the social condition is directly linked. Because of the economic condition of the poor, because they have little to no resources the world values, they don't have the right address or education or marketable skills. They weren't born on third base, as most of us were. So their social condition is then one of being devalued as people, which is humiliating in experience. The poor can be taken advantage of and really do nothing about it. That's the Bible's take on poverty. And that's why you find God throughout the scripture personally dignifying the poor and judging those who add to their humiliation. He takes it as a personal affront against the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God on people. I just finished a book last week by uh, Chris Arnotti, the author. He's, uh, uh, he used to be a uh, Wall Street uh, bond trader, and he, he left that to just become a, an independent photojournalist. And his book is called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. What Arnotti did for five years is he, he began in New York City where he lived, uh, going into a depressed uh, neighborhood in the Bronx and beginning to meet people there. And what he would do is he would go to the McDonald's. His first chapter is, if you want to understand the country, visit McDonald's. Because uh, there you find uh, the poor and the marginalized. The McDonald's is, are, are, are open for them. He talks about when he was on Wall Street, they used to make fun of people eating McDonald's. They'd never think of eating, but it was beneath them. And so he goes to McDonald's in economically depressed places all over the country, 
and he talks with whomever will talk with him. Again, for five years, he, he does this, and he listens to the stories of impoverished and otherwise marginalized people. He takes their pictures if they let him, and pictures also their neighborhoods and towns. He goes to churches a lot as well. He finds the people he's looking for there. And the common theme among them is felt humiliation. Here's a sample. Much of the back row of America, which he means those who live in the economically distressed, uh, difficult places where the industry is gone, drugs have come in, much of the back row of America, both white and black, is humiliated. The good jobs they could get straight out of high school, which gave the stability of a lifelong career, have left. The churches providing them a place in the world have been cast as irrational, backward, and lacking. The communities that provided pride are dying, and into this vacuum have come drugs. Their entire worldview is collapsing, and they are told this is their own fault because they're terrible at school, dumb, not focused enough, not disciplined enough. It is a wholesale rejection that cuts to the core of who they are because it isn't just about them. It's about their friends, family, congregation, union, and all they know. Whole towns and neighborhoods have been forgotten and destroyed. And when they point this out, they are told they should just get up and move as if anyone can do that. And if they don't, then they are clearly lazy, weak, and unmotivated. Everyone wants to feel like a valued member of something larger than themselves. The current status quo doesn't do that for most of America because it only understands value in economic forms of meaning. In that world, it is all about getting credentials, primarily those gained by education. Back in the first century, it was the scribes, the religious hierarchy, communicating that very reality to people in subtle and not so subtle ways. And what happens is if you devalue people, you, you then enter into a spectrum. And on one end of that spectrum is the people you devalue you'll avoid on one end of the spectrum or exploit on the other end of the spectrum. And God holds both in equal judgment. The irony of the widow putting in her last money to support those who cared nothing for her they devoured her house. <clears throat> in fact, everything in the offering box, small gifts and large, was devoured by those who, in the end, Jesus says, verse 40, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why do they receive that? Is there such a thing as greater condemnation? Yeah. Because not only did they live for themselves, which is the basis of condemnation before God for all human beings, but they lived for themselves on the backs of others in such ways that they dehumanized those others. That's why it's greater condemnation. Everyone, despite our God-given dignity, we all face God's condemnation for living for ourselves. This is Gospel 101. Why we need Jesus' intervention on our behalf. And we get that if we go to God through the cross. But there is such a thing as greater condemnation, yes. Resulting from not just living for self, but for living for self in ways that others get dehumanized in my preoccupation with myself. God takes that seriously enough. So we have a contrast in our text between the scribe who dignified himself, assigned this great value to himself, 
but was self-deluded, self-deceived, thought God owed him something. And the widow who's dignified by God, God here in flesh, the person of Jesus saying, this woman is all in for me. And again, it's not because one was rich and the other poor. Neither wealth nor poverty in itself makes us acceptable to God. The basis of our acceptance is Jesus Christ. His flawless life, his substitute death in our place. Though he was rich, Paul says in Corinthians, for our sakes became poor. Taking for us the condemnation we deserve, defeating death by resurrection. Whether we go to God through him and him alone is the big difference maker. We have to be very clear about the basis of acceptance with God in a passage like this one because you can be the most generous person who lives and still be lost. And you can be the most victimized, put upon person and still face the judgment of God unless you get the merit of the one who only looked like a victim in going to the cross for us. In reality, that one Jesus was no victim but a victor. Going to the cross to conquer death by dying and rising on the third day, not cheating death, defeating it at its own game. God dignifies us by imprinting us with his image and likeness. This is what gives us dignity as human beings. But for those he redeems, it, it, it goes yet a step further. Substituting himself in, in our place for our sin. That is a valuing of us that takes an eternity to fully appreciate. Would you pray with me? I love those words from the Valley of Vision that we had the unison prayer earlier. I launch my boat on the unknown waters of this year. With thee, O Father, as my harbor, thee, O Son, at my helm, thee, O Holy Spirit, filling my sails. Thank you for dignifying us in your grace, for valuing us, though all we contributed was our sin. We took your image and your likeness and we spent that on self-pleasing, self-important, self-deluded pursuits. But you are good. And thank you, Lord, that you don't you, you don't not notice, to put it in the double negative, <clears throat> the one who's been marginalized and who yet makes a contribution because in the heart of the matter, <clears throat> that one is completely yours. And Lord, would that we be as well, that you would make us completely yours. You have done that through the gift of your spirit, through the mercies of your son. But Lord, that we would own that. We would own your ownership of us. And that this time next year, at the conclusion of 2020, we can chart growth and progress, not to take pride in it as if we're something to behold, but to express the gratitude to you that you so richly merit. And even gratitude, Lord, it's not something we pay to you as if we, we owe it. There's no debtor's ethic with you. 
but we give it. And we want to give it even more freely. We want to lean hard into you and know that we can cast our cares upon you and see your care for us and know that you provide and that you give to us. You've given to us in Christ more than we will ever be able to recount. So we are grateful. Thank you for this text. Thank you for how it teaches us. Lord, we don't want to be impoverished in our response to you. We want to be rich toward you. Teach us how in this coming year. Thank you for our church. Thank you for all the ways, Lord, you have carried us along, provided for us. No matter what comes in this new year, for those um, in this room that we will respond, we will react as those who know that you're there and know that you care. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.